All right, good morning. So if you've uh, been with us at all through the month of January, you know that we have been following up our celebration of the birth of Jesus with a series on Jesus' early life. Uh, The Bible doesn't record a lot about Jesus' early life, which is unfortunate for those of us who are curious about that. Uh, But it does record at least four significant events. And uh, this week we're looking at the third of those events, which I would say is the most uh, dramatic and shocking of the four. It is what's known as the flight to Egypt. And it comes right on the heels of last week's event, the visit of the Magi. Hopefully you remember, if you were here last week, that when the Magi arrived in Judea, they went to the Jewish king, King Herod, and they asked him, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we're here to come and worship him. And Herod didn't even know about the newborn king. He wasn't, uh, that wasn't something he was anticipating. In fact, uh, the scriptures describe him as being disturbed by this news. And immediately, Herod starts plotting uh, to eliminate this threat to his power. And he tells the Magi, you guys go and search for the child, and when you find him, come back, tell me where he is, so I can go and worship him. But of course, Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus. He wants to know where Jesus is so he can kill him. And as we're going to see from the passage that we're about to read, Herod is willing to go to terrible lengths to try and kill Jesus. So let's read the story. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. We're picking up right where we left off last week. But before we read this, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the privilege and joy of being able to come together and worship and study your word. Lord, I ask that you would open us up to be able to receive whatever it is your spirit wants to tell us today. I pray that if parts of this message are hard, that you would uh, help us to, uh, to listen to your spirit's voice, helping us to understand why they might be hard. And... Um, Lord, I just pray that we would be eager to hear from you this morning. We thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. When they had gone, as in when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Just a quick comment there. When it says that uh, Rachel is weeping for her children, 
That's a, a figure of speech. Rachel was the wife of one of the patriarchs of Israel, and she was, born, she was uh, buried near Bethlehem. So uh, when people would refer to Bethle Bethlehem figuratively, they would say Rachel, um, just like oh, we don't actually say this, but you know, if you wanted to refer figuratively to America, you might say Washington is upset about this or something like that. So that's the sense in which it's being used here. Bethlehem, Rachel is weeping uh, because of the death of these children. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called, called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, as I read this story, I was reminded of the first event that we looked at in this series when Jesus is presented in the temple. Because when Jesus was presented, Simeon prophesied over him. And he prophesied that Jesus would bring salvation. But he also emphasized the fact that Jesus would be a sign that would be spoken against, that there would be hostility against Jesus. He emphasized that Jesus would not be received by everyone and that this salvation that Jesus was going to bring wasn't going to come easy. And through this story, we're seeing already the fulfillment of Simeon's words, right? Uh, Jesus is already being resisted. Evil is already at work trying to snuff out his life before it even gets started. Salvation is not coming easy. The Son of God, we might say, has fully entered into the mess of our world, which includes corrupt political leaders and the cruelty that they inflict. And as we saw, Herod is so desperate to maintain his power that he orders the execution of all the male children in Bethlehem under two years old. Now, some of you might be aware that if you start doing some research on this story and, and what people have to say about it, there's a lot of people who will say, oh, this never happened. Um, and they will often use it to argue against the reliability of the Bible. And their argument goes something like this. They'll say, well, if all the children under two in a town were killed, we would have more of a record of it than just the Bible but this story doesn't appear in any other historical documents. Now, on the surface, that sounds like kind of a convincing argument, right? But I don't think it holds up at all. And just in case you have encountered this argument or you know, to prepare you in case you encounter it in the future, I want to explain why it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is because we, we imagine that if this slaughtering of the innocents was taking place, that it would involve hundreds or thousands of babies being killed. But that might not, be, might not be accurate. In fact, it's possible that this was a limited enough event, limited enough in scope, that it wouldn't have really attracted attention outside of Bethlehem. According to a professor, he's passed away now, but a professor named William F. Albright, 
who was the dean of American archaeology in the Holy Land, he estimated that the entire population of Bethlehem around this time would have been about 300 people. Uh, so he, given that, he estimates that the number of children under two years old in Bethlehem, Bethlehem at this time would be about a dozen, which means the number of male children would be about six or seven. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is a terrible tragedy. This is a terrible tragedy even if just one child was killed. Uh, but when we realize the limited scope of an event like this in the days before uh, you know, mass communication, it's not hard to understand how it could go uh, overlooked by historians or not hard to understand why some historians wouldn't, wouldn't bother to record it. So that's the first reason we shouldn't doubt this story. And the second reason is because even though we don't have other historical sources attesting to this event, we do have other historical sources attesting to the fact that King Herod was a bad, bad guy, a cruel man who did not value human life. Uh, historians record that he had his favorite wife strangled because he got mad at her and killed her. And he ordered the execution of three of his own sons. So, it doesn't seem like a stretch at all, based on what other historical sources have to say about Herod, to believe that he would order something like this. So, if you hear people saying, oh, that couldn't have happened, don't worry about it. There's no reason to think that it didn't. Now, as I reflected on this story this week, there were two words that kept coming to my mind, and they both begin with R. It's convenient. And I, I hope that from now on, when you think of this story of the flight to Egypt, you always think of these two words. And they are recapitulation and refugee. Recapitulation and refugee. So first one, recapitulation. If you're not even sure what that means, don't worry about it. I'll get to that. Several times in this story, you may have noticed, hopefully you noticed, that Matthew quotes prophecies, right? And he says that Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies, that what's happening is fulfilling these, these prophecies. For example, verses 14 and 15. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, chances are, when you read that, if you're anything like me, you think something like this. You think that Matthew is quoting a passage from the Old Testament where someone prophesied that the Messiah would have to go to Egypt and then come out of Egypt, and Jesus is fulfilling that prediction. Right? That's... that's what we tend to assume. And that's what I used to think, too. But then one day I decided to look up the passage that Matthew is referring to. If you look in your Bible, there's a little footnote, and it says that this is from Hosea uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And if you go to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, this is what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Hold on. I thought, well, wait a minute, there's no prediction there. There's no prophecy. It doesn't say anything about a coming Messiah. It's talking about Israel, right? In this passage, God is recalling how 
Israel went into Egypt when they were in slavery, right? And then he brought them up out of Egypt. That's the story of the Exodus. That's what this passage is about. So why is Matthew saying that this scripture is fulfilled when Jesus went to Egypt and then came out? Is Matthew being dishonest? Is he just going throughout the Old Testament and taking verses out of context and hoping that nobody notices? Before I understood what was going on here, this was actually really troubling for me because it really did seem like Matthew was just being dishonest, and I didn't know what to do with that. So, what is actually going on here? Well, Matthew is not being dishonest. If he was being dishonest, he would have had a much harder time pulling the wool over the eyes of his original audience than us today, okay? The reason we don't recognize what he's doing here is because we have a very limited understanding of what it means for a Old Testament passage to be fulfilled. We tend to think of fulfillment as what happens when a a prophecy about the future comes to pass, right? And that can be a fulfillment of Scripture. That is one way uh, that Scripture is fulfilled. But that word fulfillment has a broader meaning in the biblical scriptures. It can also mean to bring to completion. It can mean to show the full significance of. And it can mean to interpret correctly. So what Matthew is saying here is not that Hosea made a prediction and then the prediction came true. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that what's happening in Jesus' early life is just like what happened to Israel. What's happening in Jesus' life is just like what happened to Israel. Very early in Israel's history, they went into Egypt, and then they were in slavery there, and then still early in Israel's history, they were brought out of Egypt. And this is what has just happened to Jesus, right? Jesus has gone into Egypt, and now he has come out of Egypt And so what Matthew is saying, this is the way I would put it, is, look, Jesus' life is mirroring the history of Israel. Do you see this? Or the fancier word than mirroring would be recapitulating the history of Israel. Uh, To recapitulate means to summarize and restate the main points of. To summarize and restate the main points of. And that's what Matthew is saying that Jesus is doing here. He's fulfilling the scriptures in the sense that he is reliving them. He's like a little, uh, a microcosm of the history of Israel. And we can see this even more if we look at the rest of the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. So here's examples of Jesus recapitulating. We already identified that Israel went to Egypt and Jesus also went to Egypt. And Israel came out of Egypt. Jesus came out of Egypt. Pharaoh ordered the slaughter of the Israelite infants when they were Egypt, in, in, in Egypt. Uh, Herod ordered the slaughtering of infants in Bethlehem. When Pharaoh made that order, Moses barely escaped death. When Herod made that order, Jesus barely escaped death. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus passed through the waters of baptism. I realize that one might seem like a stretch, 
But when you look at the way the material is arranged in Matthew, there is this alignment with the way that things are uh, arranged in the story of the Exodus. The Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the desert. Jesus spent 40 days being tempted in the desert. And Moses went on a mountain and was given the law. Jesus went on a mountain and gave a new law, the Sermon on the Mount. See that? So throughout Jesus' life, he fulfills the scriptures in this sense. He recapitulates them. Sometimes there are predictions that he fulfills, yes, but there are other senses in which he fulfills the scriptures. And here's a good analogy for what's going on here. If you think of the Old Testament like a bunch of melodies, like imagine all these stories are melodies, Jesus' life is like a symphony that weaves all those melodies together. And Matthew is listening to the symphony of Jesus' life, and he's recognizing all these familiar melodies, and he's pointing them out, right? And he's saying, ooh, do you hear that? That's that cello part. Remember that? There's that special percussion line. There's that flute solo. And ultimately, what Matthew is saying is that Jesus' life is like a symphony that repeats all those old melodies and fixes the parts that didn't sound right. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Israel was always meant to be a blessing to the world. From the start, that was what God promised to Abraham. They were supposed to be a light to the nations of, of, of who God is and what God is like. But over and over, they failed to do that. Over and over, they turned to idols, they turned away from the true God. But Jesus, unlike Israel, perfectly embodies the will of God. And in doing that, he becomes the true Israel, who is a light to all the nations and is a blessing to the whole world. That's what Matthew is telling us. I I realize this is kind of heady stuff, but here at St. Paul's, we get into the nitty-gritty. We use the big words like recapitulation. We try to understand what the scriptures are saying. And uh, I'm glad that you all let me do that. Um, but yeah, what's, what's going on here is much richer than simply, oh, Jesus is fulfilling predictions. Okay. He's recapitulating. So that, that is the first word I want us to think of when we think of this story, recapitulation. The second word is refugee. Let's talk about that one. The United Nations defines a refugee as a person who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. And by that definition, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are definitely refugees. They fled their home country because of threat of violence to find refuge in a foreign nation. Now, why is that significant? Well, the fact that Jesus was a refugee should influence the way that we look at refugees, the way we think about refugees. If you were here throughout December, you know that we talked a lot about the significance of the incarnation, right? And one aspect of the incarnation that I emphasize is that in becoming human, God elevates the dignity of every human, right? Because when God becomes human, he identifies with humanity. 
and he shows how much he values us, how much he, he cares about us. And in a similar way, in choosing to identify with the poor, because Jesus was born to a poor family, Jesus elevates the dignity of the poor. And in the same way, in choosing to be born into a situation where he became a refugee, Jesus elevates the dignity of refugees. Now every person who is a refugee can say, I have something in common with the incarnate God. And here's what this means for us. If we worship a God who is willing to become a refugee, then we should be the kind of people who have compassion for refugees. When I prepare sermons, I try very hard not to impose any kind of uh, political agenda on the text. I try hard to avoid unnecessary controversy. But I also try very hard to follow the text wherever it leads me. And when I look at this text and I ask myself, what does this mean for us living in the 21st century? I don't, have, I don't know how not to talk about the refugee crisis. I just, I don't, I don't know how. Uh, and I recognize that uh, that subject is regarded as political. Um, it can be controversial. But I do think it's where the passage leads to this, this subject. Uh, this is not the first time that this subject has come up at St. Paul's. I, I talked about it back in July when we looked at the book of Ruth. Again, that's where the passage led. Um, back in August, Chuck Redfern did a guest message where he talked more broadly about immigration, but that included the subject of, of refugees, of course. And, uh, and here we are again, not because I have some agenda to push, but because this is where the scriptures lead us. So I did some research and some thinking about the world refugee crisis this week. And uh, here's some of the information I found. Uh, right now, the world is in the midst of a refugee crisis. There are more people fleeing their countries because of war, persecution, or violence than ever before. Uh, in June of 2019, the United Nations estimated that there are about 26 million refugees in the world right now. And there's about 1.4 million who are actively looking for a place to resettle right now. And many of those 26 million who are settled aren't necessarily in the best conditions. Um, now, you know, I am not so naive as to think that our country has the resources to just re receive all these refugees. Uh, this is a problem that requires a worldwide effort uh, to resolve. I am also uh, not so naive as to think that there shouldn't be any kind of process for determining if somebody is really a refugee before bringing them into a country. But I am confident of this. We in the church should have an attitude of compassion for people who are refugees. And I will reiterate a concern from my sermon on the book of Ruth last summer, which is that right now in America, white evangelical Christians do not have a reputation for being compassionate toward refugees. And 
Sometimes that's just the result of bad press. But I do think that there's some evidence that it's earned. And I will reiterate the information that I offered last summer in support of that. The Pew Research Survey uh, interviewed Americans and asked them, do you think that our country has any kind of moral responsibility to accept refugees? And about 51% of Americans said, yeah, I think we do. Um, which is not, not too surprising, right? About half of America thinks that. Um, but what is surprising to me is they found that the subgroup of Americans who are most likely to say, no, I don't think we have a moral responsibility, were the people who identified as white evangelical Christians. So among people self-identifying as white evangelical Christians, uh, one in four, 25%, said, yes, we have this moral responsibility to accept refugees. Now, I don't know about you, but this just doesn't make sense to me. Why would any of us who are members of Christ's church, people who worship the God who became a refugee, the God who calls us to love the least of these, why would we look at people who are fleeing from war and violence and persecution for their lives and say, that's none of my concern. That's not my, not my responsibility. You know, especially when we consider that the God we worship did say, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Now, I have some more data I want to offer. And this is for you to consider. And as I present this, I want to, in, in, in humility, admit there's so much I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly how many country, uh, refugees our country has the resources to welcome in and support. Um, I don't know what the numbers should be. Um, I don't know every factor that should go into making these kinds of decisions. Uh, I, I study the Bible. I'm not a governor. I'm not a politician. I, I don't know. I don't know a lot. But I did some research this week, and here are some numbers I would encourage us all to think about this week. So over the course of this next year, it's been decided that uh, our country will accept a maximum of 18,000 refugees. We might accept less, but that's the maximum we'll, we'll accept. Just a, a substantial number of people. Um, I found data for how many refugees our country has accepted for each year since 1980. Um, I didn't look before that. I had to cut off at some point, so I don't know what went on before 1980. But since 1980, this number, 18,000, is the lowest it's ever been. Uh, it's even lower than right after September 11th, which is interesting because, you know, right after September 11th, our country understandably kind of, you know, battened down the hatches and was hesitant to, uh, to let people in. But it's even lower than right after September 11th. Uh, for comparison, the highest number of refugees we accepted was in 1980. We accepted 201,000 refugees that year. Um, between 1990 and 1995, we averaged 116,000 refugees a year. So that's nearly six and a half times the maximum amount we're supposed to receive this year. So our country does have a history of accepting a lot more refugees 
uh, than we are right now, which is strange to me given that we're in such a crisis right now in the world uh, with this, this problem. A few more numbers to consider. Uh, the U.S. population is 329,064,917, give or take a few, I'm sure. Uh, so that means that if we accept 18,000 refugees in 2020, then those new refugees would make up 0.0005% of our total population, um, which that is a substantial number. I don't... Uh, we are still, even at accepting 18,000 refugees, we are in the top four resettlement countries in the world. So that's significant, right? Um, but 18,000 is not a huge number either. I mean, if all of those refugees were evenly distributed throughout the country, you would have to shake 18,281 hands before you came across one of these new refugees. Something else to consider is that the United States has a, a low population density. Out of the 232 countries in the world, we have the 174th highest population density, uh, which means that 75% of countries have a higher population density than we do. So we've got, we got quite a bit of space. So. The data suggests to me that we as a country, for whatever reason, are becoming less generous and compassionate toward refugees. We still do a lot, and I'm proud of the fact that our country has done a lot and is still doing a substantial amount. Uh, but there's this downward trend to our generosity. And as I consider the data, I just Maybe I'm missing something, but I can't understand why that downward trend would be considered necessary or good, especially given the circumstances in the world right now. And I'll say it again, there's a lot I don't know. I admit there's a lot I don't know, um, but it doesn't make sense to me. And what really doesn't make sense to me is why the white evangelical Christian part of the church would be supporting that downward trend or even encouraging that downward trend. Now, let me be clear. This sermon right now, this is not about who to vote for. I'm not campaigning for a political party. I don't do that. But I am exhorting us to an attitude of love and compassion. We in the church should be people who demonstrate love and generosity and compassion to refugees. We should be known as people who demonstrate love and compassion to refugees. And if our country becomes less compassionate, less generous, it shouldn't be because of us. Because we worship the God who became a refugee. And all of us should be grateful that no one stood at the border of Egypt and said to Mary and Joseph, sorry, Egypt's full. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that you identify with those who are in the worst of circumstances. 
And Lord, we pray for the many millions of people who don't have a home to call their own, who have been forced out of uh, their, their, their homes because of violence and because of things they can't control. Lord, I pray that we would have the kind of compassion for them that you have for them. And Lord, we pray that the church would be your hands and feet in, in supporting them and helping them, Lord. Give us wisdom for how to do that. Lord, we pray for our country, that we would be a, a generous and compassionate country, that we, would care, um, that we would care for Americans, but that we would also care for the world, and uh, that we would have wisdom in doing that. Lord, we thank you that you have fulfilled the scriptures through Jesus, that you have fulfilled the predictions, that you have fulfilled the story, that you have brought it to completion, that you have interpreted it, showed how it is to be interpreted correctly, um, that you have shown the full significance of it through Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that. We worship you for that. And we pray that you would help us to, to uh, hear the song, uh, the symphony that comes through Jesus, and just to be in awe of it. In Jesus' name, amen.